someone. Hey, so we are actually in the book of First John. This is now, our, I think, our sixth or seventh week, uh, but we're in First John chapter 3. We're basically going to finish chapter 3 tonight, so let's do this. Turn to First John 3. If you need a Bible, uh, please raise your hand. We have Franklin in the back passing out some Bibles. Keegan, so raise your hand. We'd love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us, but we are in First John uh, chapter 3. We'll be looking at verse 19 through 23. So I just want to say welcome. Uh, so glad you're here. This is, like I said, our sixth or seventh week now in this, in this building on Sunday nights. And if you were with us a few weeks ago, we had a little vision update. Our hope, hope, Lord willing, is by December uh, 3rd. We'd love to be in a school on Sunday mornings. So maybe Deerfield Middle, maybe Quiet Waters Elementary, but that's kind of what we're looking at. So hopefully we'll be meeting Sunday mornings in just a few weeks. But we're glad you're here. Uh, we're in First John. Let me just kind of review. I think it's helpful to review. I think it's helpful to know what's going on here. First uh, John. John is five. First John's five little chapters. This is most likely the last book of the Bible that was written. Uh, John, as you guys know, was a disciple of Jesus. John was one of the original 12 disciples. So here's John, one of the original 12, walk with Jesus. He's now 80 to 100 years old, and he's walked with Jesus for a long time. And now he's at a point in his life where he's kind of that grandfather in the faith, where he's kind of looking back and he's writing to, in a sense, his kids spiritually. And over and over again, you'll hear him say these loving terms like beloved, beloved, or little children. He's probably the only one that can do that. He's in that state of life where he's saying, hey, little kids, listen, I love you guys. John was known, Eusebius, a church historian, tells us that John was known for going church to church and just doing five-word sermons. He would say, little children love one another and then he'd leave. And I know that we'd love to have church be done that way, or just five words to be out of here. But that's what John was known for. And, and that really is kind of the focal point of First John. Here's the guy, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John called himself that. John's like, I'm the guy Jesus loved, and he's writing about love. And so we're kind of entering into that topic. Uh, we're going to talk about that more in chapter four in the next coming weeks. Uh, but today we're going to look specifically at this idea of good news for guilty hearts. Good news for guilty hearts. Um, I don't know if you've been with us throughout First John, but John's kind of a book that, that shakes you a little bit, kind of wakes you up a little bit spiritually, kind of shakes you to your core. Uh, John kind of gets to the main point. Here's two things John is trying to do in this book, all right? Two things John is trying to communicate over and over again, and hopefully you've seen this by now. First thing is this. He's trying to reveal those who are false Christians but claim to be. The first thing that John's trying to do is reveal those, can we put that up there, who are false Christians but claim to be. Number two, he's trying to affirm those who are real Christians, but fear they may not be. So there's two things he's really trying to do. He's trying to say, hey, maybe you're reading this letter and you realize, I'm not a believer. Maybe I've just been playing this spiritual Christian game. Maybe I've been influenced by some bad theology, like the Gnostics. Remember, we talked about the Gnostics going around and kind of proclaiming a different Jesus. And so John is trying to identify, here's what a real believer in Jesus looks like. And then he's also trying to affirm those who are real Christians. John's actually trying to say, hey, here's how you can know. You can know you're born again. You can know you have eternal life. Uh, do we have another mic? Because I think this is the bad one. Where's the good one? Up here? Sweet. All right, check, check. Perfect. I'm going to do that one. Here we go. So this is John. John is kind of reminding us in this way. Is that echoey? Yes. Come on. Ooh, it is off. Yeah. Here we go. We good? Check, check. All right. Give it up for Luis, guys. Luis is so great. Yay, Luis. There we go. Three mics. It always takes three here. It's great. If you guys remember our first week, is much worse than that. Uh, so the idea of this is John is just trying to show, hey, are you a real Christian? Let's, let's talk about that. Or are you a false Christian? And basically, that's kind of the point of First John so far. So this book does kind of wake you up a little bit. I, I, think, I think regardless of where you're at, even if you're not a believer, even if you're not a Christian, know why this is good for you? Because you can know what a real Christian should look like. Because I've talked to non-believers, they go, but I've been around Christians, and Christians are fakes, and they're phonies, and, and maybe one, yes, they are. Yes, we'd probably agree. Or two, maybe you weren't really around true believers in Jesus Christ. And so maybe the representation of Christ that you've seen has been a false representation. And so whether you are a Christian or you're not a Christian, this book's just good. It's helpful to know it affirms you and goes, yes, Lord, I need this. Or maybe it should do what 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, which again says, examine yourselves, test yourselves to whether or not you're in the faith. So that's First John. That's kind of what's happening here. He's, going to, he's just trying to encourage us some, in some ways. Uh, but what we're going to look at specifically tonight, again, is good news for guilty hearts. John, I think, has, like I said, beat us up a little bit. And he's going to try to kind of comfort us now in these next few verses. And this is so important. 
Now, I was, as I was studying this text this week, I was reminded, and I had to brush up and, and restudy it a little bit, about Macbeth. I don't know if I remember taking like, Shakespeare back in high school and Lady Macbeth, and I had to go reread it a little bit. But in, in summary, the story is she tries to persuade her husband to kill someone who's kind of the rival of their competition for political gain, economic gain, all that, and he does. And if you guys remember Macbeth, Lady Macbeth is walking around. I think she's having, if I remember right, she's like sleepwalking. And she's having these visions or dreams that she has blood-stained hands and she can't get the blood off her hands, right? And she's, she's screaming and cursing that the blood wouldn't get off her hands. And the funny thing is the blood doesn't leave her hands. It just doesn't leave. And for us as Christians, I think sometimes we can have a soul that almost like this blood stain. There's like a spot on our soul. We just can't get it out. And, and John is trying to affirm us. John's trying to say that blood-stained soul has actually been paid for by blood. That it can be washed, it can be made clean, and, and you can walk in confidence now. That we don't have to walk in condemnation always as Christians. And so I think John here is trying to encourage us in so many ways. So I just want to read 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 through 23. Not a lot tonight, but a lot to go over. So let's look at verse 19. 1 John 3, verse 19. John writes, And by this, and by what? Look at verse 18. Remember how we ended last week. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's why we ended last week. He goes, let your love be shown through giving. Let your love be shown through activity and action, not just in word, but in deed and in truth. And he says, and by this, verse 19, by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Amen? Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So good. Let's pray. And we'll just give this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you. God, I do just ask that you'd speak tonight. There's so much here for, for all of our hearts that we need to hear. God, I ask that we just give space for you to work and God, for the microphone and for all the things that try to distract us, Lord, we just ask, Jesus, that you'd be seen. Jesus, we ask that you would give us a peace that surpasses understanding. God, we ask that you would do what you do best, God, when your word is shared, Lord, that you would you'd convict us where we need convicting, that you'd heal us, God, where we need healing, that you'd encourage us, God, where we, where we need encouraging. Just do what you want to do right now. We thank you, Jesus. We look to you. We don't know who else to look to. So we ask that you'd speak to us in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm kind of curious. How many of you growing up as a kid were that type of child that just had a guilty conscience, no matter what you did, just extreme guilt? You were kind of the rule keeper. But growing up, you know, you're the kind of kid where, right, you're the kind of kid where your teacher says, hey, take one candy. If you took two, you'd like tell on yourself later. You know what I'm talking about? Or, or whatever it might be, there's so many scenarios. Maybe you killed a bug when you were little and it just, like, it just lived, you couldn't, like, you lived with it for a few days and, like, crying every day. I think we have a lot of rule keepers that, regardless, something happened and we kind of had that very sensitive spirit. It's like a very sensitive spirit, and that's sweet. How many of you are the opposite of that? You're like, not as sweet. It's more of like I was a rule breaker, not a rule keeper. Where it's like if you saw a wall and it said wet paint, you're like, I want to I touch the wall. It says wet paint, don't touch, now I need to touch it, right? The sign that says stay off grass, you're like, well, why? I need to, I need to feel the grass. Like, whatever you see the opposite, you kind of want to do that. It's funny, John's kind of writing to these two groups of people. You kind of have rule keepers and you have rule breakers. And John's trying to write to both of them. He's trying to speak into both of them. He's trying to, he's trying to show both of them where this will, this will have you fall short being a rule keeper. This will have you fall short being a rule breaker. And he's really kind of speaking into both sides here. And I don't know if you've been reading this at all with me and kind of feeling that conviction that really John over and over again says, if you say you love God and, and there's like always an example. And I don't know if you kind of have felt this with me, but John's really trying to make it clear. Here's how you can know you're a believer. Here's how you can know you're faking it. That's kind of what he's doing. And I want to just read a few verses just in case maybe you haven't felt it yet. In case you haven't felt it, I just want to read a few verses. We'll throw them up here really quick. We'll read just through these. John says things like this over and over again. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 2, 4. It says, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, 11. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John 2, 15. No one abides in him. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. This is 1 John 3, 6. Uh, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him nor known him. 
First John three ten says, "But this by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." All right, over and over again, John kind of has these intense verses trying to make it really clear. If you guys were with us last week, we literally talked about the idea of you're either a child of God, verse 10 says, or you're a child of Satan. So if you're back again for this week, I'm so thankful you're here. Welcome. Like that was not an easy message to give. He's going, hey, you're either a child of God or you're a child of Satan. Welcome to the family. Like that's all John kind of does. He's like, it's pretty black and white. And maybe you can read this and go, well, how do I even know I'm saved then? How do I know I'm really good? And kind of the purpose of this is say, hey, here's how you can know you're really walking with God. You really have a relation with God or you're not. And again, we kind of talked about the idea of you keep, there's an idea of you keep on sinning and there's no repentance. It doesn't break your heart. There's no sense of God, remove this from me. Or again, you, you sin, but it doesn't own you. You're not a slave to it. It's a slave to you. We looked at Cain and Abel, where God said to Cain, hey, sin lies at your door and it wants to rule over you, but you should rule over it. The difference between Cain and Abel was Abel ruled over his sin and Cain was ruled under, over by his sin. One ruled over it, one was ruled over by it. And so that's kind of what he's comparing and contrasting still, and he's kind of looking at this. And I'm sharing this with us because I think for myself included, we can read these verses and almost feel beat up. I almost feel like, God, well, how do I really know? Can I really be confident? And 1 John 3, 19 and 20, I think John is trying to like take a deep breath and say, listen, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. He knows all things. And I really think there's this idea, and we're going to talk about this tonight, that, listen, we as Christians can tend to beat ourselves up and we can tend to, uh, to beat ourselves up, but we have to realize Jesus took the beating so we don't have to beat ourselves up. Jesus took it for us. And there's a side where we've got to kind of explore that a little bit more. That Jesus took the beating so we don't always have to beat ourselves up. It's funny, if you look at church history, you look at a guy like Martin Luther. Before Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation, he was just a monk, right? And he was reading the scriptures, and this guy used to beat himself and starve himself. This guy used to beat his back till just bloody, and he'd faint of just the pain, and he would pass out. Because in his mind, he thought by beating himself or not feeding himself, he was somehow pleasing God. And he couldn't have been further from the truth. And that little phrase, the just shall live by faith, just changed his life. Just changed the, the church's trajectory really as we know it. We got back to this idea of grace. We got back to this idea of faith. And it kind of changed everything from that point on. And so John's at this point writing saying, hey, if you're hearing everything I'm sharing, hopefully, one, it does reveal whether or not you're in the faith. But if you do feel condemned, let me just say this. He goes, God is greater than our hearts. And so I want to look at this three things today we're going to see here. I'm trying to be very clear. A confidence that changes your peace. A confidence that will change how you pray, your prayer. And a confidence that changes your person. All right. So John is talking about you can have a confidence that will change your peace, that will change your prayer, and that will change your person. All right, let's look at verse 19 again. Let's just reread it. Verse 19. By this, he says, verse 19, by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. I read a sermon this week on 1 John 3:19 through 20. I read a sermon on, by Spurgeon from like 1875. I'm like, oh, he has a sermon on this. Let me read it. And it's pretty hard to understand because of Old King James. Uh, but some things I pulled away from it, I thought I'd just show you. He kind of he says there's two sides of this verse. First quote, just so you can see it. Uh, he says, there are some persons whose hearts justly condemn them, and the voice of, of conscience is in them the voice of God. He's, he's basically saying, for some of you, you read this text and you feel condemned, and that's the voice of God. Maybe we should read this text and feel the sense of, wow, I am far from God. Wow, I need to repent. Wow, I need Jesus. Maybe for some of us, this should be an eye-opening thing. But then he goes on to say, in this next quote, sometimes our heart condemns us, but in doing so, it gives a wrong verdict. And then we have the satisfaction of being able to take the case into a, a, a higher court. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Let's just think about that phrase for a second. He knows all things. So John, who wrote this, was a guy, again, who was the youngest disciple who walked with Jesus. Now he's the oldest disciple, the last living disciple. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the book of Revelation. If you've ever read Revelation, 44 different times the idea of the throne is being communicated. Revelation seems to be just focusing on the throne. When you read Revelation, whether it's chapter 4 or going to the end, it's focused on the fact that we serve a God who is ruling and reigning from a throne. And all of heaven's tension is on the throne. They're singing about the throne. The focus seems to be on the throne. Why? Because God is in power. He has control over everything. He knows all things. He's all-powerful. The focus is on him. And so this idea of he knows all things, I want, I want us to just think about that. 
God knows what our week looked last week. He knows what we did last night. He knows those things, and, and despite all that, he still loves us. God knows the things that we would never get on the microphone and tell anyone about. God knows the things that we are just desperately ashamed of, that if, I, if the things I said were ever on the screen or the things I've done were ever on the screen, no one would be in this room right now, right? Same thing goes for all of us. If there's ever a point in time, like, let's just bring up your highlight reel of your sins and just throw it up here. Like, no one would ever come back here. And yet, we serve a God who knows all that and so much more, and he goes, and I love you. And I still say that you're forgiven. I still say that you're my son, you're my daughter. And if your heart condemns you, I'm greater than your heart. Because we know that as we studied last week, our heart is desperately wicked above all else. And God's like, I know, I'm greater than that. This is so comforting for those who I think are just prone to have that guilty conscience. Those who are prone to kind of mess up or stumble here and there and to kind of go, I can't run to God. I can't go to church. I can't be around Christians. I can't be in community because they're going to judge me. This is going to happen. And, and yet our God doesn't do any of that. This is, I think, that text to really encourage us and speak to us that a lot of us might need. You know, I can't read this text and not think of Peter. So I thought we need to turn to John 21 and read Peter's story briefly. So would you turn with me to John chapter 21? John chapter 21, because I think this is the perfect example of this. But John chapter 21. As you're turning there, let me just share two little thoughts with you guys that is simple, and yet to me it's, it's profound. There's two ways, listen, there are two ways our heart condemns us. Number one is this, uh, through terrible conduct. Our heart condemns us because of our own terrible conduct. And number two, uh, because of our tender conscience. And please hear that. Our heart condemns us sometimes because of our terrible conduct. There are some things we have said and done that, again, we are ashamed of. Maybe some of you have done some things you don't want to bring up. Maybe, maybe you've broken up families. Maybe you've committed adultery. Maybe you had an abortion. Maybe you've just done some things you don't want to tell anyone about. And they, maybe they're just living with that stain. Maybe it's not terrible conduct. Maybe you just have a t- very tender conscience. Maybe it's almost like dying through a million paper cuts where like every little thing just seems to get at you. And it's like just you have a very tender soul and there's this condemnation that can come. And, and the Bible talks about, again, this, this condemnation, this condemnation that pushes you away from God is not from God. There's a difference between condemnation and conviction. And maybe you've heard of it. It's just so necessary. Condemnation, when we sin, causes us to want to run away from God. It's that voice is like, how dare you? You've, you've been walking with Christ for so long now, and you did this again. I can't believe you went back to that. People are going to If they see you, do you know what they're going to say? And there's this condemnation that pushes us away from God. Then there's conviction that that is sin, and that is wicked, that it goes against God. But you know what? It causes you to want to draw near to God and press into him more so to experience that grace and freedom in Christ. Not to run from him, but more to embrace it. And so there's two ways I think we can kind of have condemnation through terrible conduct or through a tender conscience. Peter, in a sense, I think is almost, has both. And I want you to just be reminded, in, in John 21, just, let me just catch up to speed what's happening. You guys remember, Jesus was just taken to be, to be crucified. Peter just boasted. And so, Lord, if I'll deny you, I will never deny you, right? So Jesus taken to be, to be crucified. Peter's warming himself by the fire. This little girl was like, aren't you a Galilean? Aren't you one of Jesus? I can tell by your voice. And it says he begins to swear and curse that he does not know Jesus. And again, I don't know if you've ever done that. Like, I don't know. Je- like, he swore and court, cur- cursed. Think about it. And then it says that Peter made eye contact with Jesus. Imagine ma- swearing and cursing you don't believe in Jesus, and then you make eye contact with him as he's taken to be crucified. I mean, that was Peter's last interaction with Jesus before Jesus is crucified, and then he dies. Imagine the one you spent three years of your life with that you love dearly. Imagine the last thing you heard is swearing and cursing, and then he's dead, and you, have, you can't reconcile with him. You can't talk to him. You can't, ex- you can't go, I, I blew it. That's just how it ends. And so we know that at this point in time in John 21, Peter has seen Jesus a couple times. He's seen him more in group settings, and he's going to see him in a group setting here, but he's going to have that one-on-one kind of time with Jesus. Other people will be watching, but I love what's happening here. Just to remind you of John 21, we're going to be reading at verse 15, but just to remind you, Peter's fishing. Jesus is by the shore. Jesus says, hey, cast it on their side. They, cast it, they catch a lot of fish. Peter realizes, oh my goodness, this is Jesus. He jumps in the water, takes off his garment, jumps in the water, swims to the shore. They bring the fish on the land. They're now cooking the fish by the fire and Jesus appears in this conversation. And I want to just point out a few things in that. There, this is the first time, the first time Jesus called Peter into ministry was when he was fishing, right? I mean, and it must have just reenacted so many things for him. He's fishing. Jesus says, come follow me. That's how Peter first started following Jesus. I'm sure in his mind he's going to flash back to that. It was in John chapter 6, we read that Jesus fed the 5,000. And it was during that time Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. It was the time they're eating bread and fish. 
that he confesses the Christ. So it's over a meal. He confessed Jesus to be the Christ. They're over a meal again. It, we read here and earlier, it says that there, there's coals by the fire. I'm sure it's a flashback for Peter being by the fire where he denied Jesus. I think there's just so much symbolism here that just for Peter would just be a flashback of everything in his ministry with Jesus. Look at verse 15. It says in verse 15, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. Or that phrase, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let me just kind of explain what's happening. I know some of you might know this, but it is interesting. I do think it's intentional in the Greek. I think this conversation is incredibly intentional. Jesus says, Peter, do you agapeo? Do you agape me? Do you love me? That's the word he uses. Peter says back to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. So I want you to understand this. This is happening the first two times. Peter, do you love me? Imagine I said to my wife, hey, wife, do you love me? Yeah, you know I like you. Okay, okay, that's cool. But do you love me? Yes, you know that I like you. That's what's happening. First time, Jesus goes, do you agape me? Do you, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter doesn't feel like he can say that. And it's almost understandably, right? How, like, how can he get those words? Like, how can he say that and look Jesus in the eyes, knowing he cursed him, denied him when he's crucified? And he goes, yes, Lord, you know I like you. Jesus goes again, do you love me? And he goes, yes, Lord, you know that I like you. The third time, Jesus goes to his level. The third time, Jesus says, do you phileo me? He, he says what Peter says, and Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that. You know all things. I want you to see so many things here. First of all, how many times did Peter deny him? Three, right? How many times is Jesus restoring Peter? Three. I want you to see, this is not just forgiveness happening to Peter. It's restoration to his office. It's saying, listen, you're not done in ministry. I'm not done with you yet. You can still serve. You can still be in this place. Of, and I love what he said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Like, take care of the new ones in the faith. Feed the ones that are older and mature. Like, he's really kind of giving. Imagine if I say to someone, I'm about to, like, I'm about to leave and go away somewhere. And I say, hey, take care of my son, Micah. But before I say, hey, do you love me? And they're like, yeah, I like you. I'm not going to probably be like, hey, take, you can still have Micah. Like, but I love how Jesus is like, hey, you know what? I still am entrusting this over to you. Like, I'm still giving this over to you. Jesus looked at him and said, do you love me more than these? And the question, it's fun to like study this. What does Jesus mean by that? When Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Like, what is he referring to? We really don't know. He could be referring to the idea of fishing. Some people think he's referring to fishing. Peter, that was his industry. That was his work. That's like, and Peter went back to fishing, which some say probably shouldn't have went back to fishing because he left it all to follow Jesus the first time. And here he is going back to that. And so some think that he's saying, do you love me more than your career? But I don't think it's that. I, I don't know. I don't think it's that. And others are saying, hey, do you love me more than these men? Do you love me more than you love the disciples? Do you love me more than your brothers? Something it's that. I don't know if you, here's kind of my thought or feeling on this. Do you remember when Jesus said, or Peter said, even if all deny you, I will not deny you. Even if they all leave you, I'll not leave you. He boasted that he would be like, I would basically love you the most. I wonder if there's a sense of, hey, do you love me more than these? You said you love me more than these men. And it was like reliving what he said last to Jesus. Do you love me more than these? It's like, wow. Peter didn't feel like he was able to say to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I got that you. He couldn't get that out. That never, that never came out. But I want you to see that our God is so good because he, he knew Peter's response and he went to his level. He went to his level and says, it's all right, Pete, do you, do you have this brotherly love for me? He's like, yeah, I, can, I, I can at least say that. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And I love what Jesus is doing. He's going to Peter on his level. Peter's heart was very condemned. Peter's heart was very guilty. Peter probably felt like he had no right to be eating a meal with Jesus, let alone being called back into ministry from, with Jesus. I mean, I can't imagine the things that he was feeling in his mind and Jesus was trying to restore him personally and publicly. He's doing this in front of the other disciples. The, the disciples would have known what Peter has done. They would have been aware of that story. Again, other people wrote it down, right? The point is he's doing it publicly, restoring him publicly. I love Jesus for this. He's like, you denied me publicly, let me restore you publicly. You feel condemned, let me, let me just free you from that for a bit. I'm so thankful we serve a God who knows all things. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Peter's heart was wicked like our heart. Peter can get those words out and God's like, Peter, I know, I know you love me. It's almost like, I know you do. Like, even though you don't feel like you can say it, I know you do. And we serve a God who knows all things, who knows us in that deep, intimate way. Again, our God loves us even when we are unlovable. I'm not loved because I'm so lovable. I'm loved because I have a God who's so loving. 
right? It has nothing to do with me being super lovable. And like, it's just, I'm just an easy person to love. It's like, of course not. It's like God just has this lovingness side to him. Here's what I want you to see and point out. And again, going back to 1 John 3.20. If your heart and my heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Let me just say this. What does God know? Obviously everything. But what does the Bible use that phrase, God knows? He knows. He knows. What does God know about us? What does the Bible say God knows about us? Can I just give you a few verses up here? And there's a lot of verses today, and you can write them down. It's okay, whatever. If you want to write the reference down, that's fine. But a few verses of what God knows about us. Can I remind us of Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14? We'll throw it up. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Isn't that encouraging? Our God knows that we are created from dust, and we are going to dust. Can I just say, when we fail time and time again, and we go, God, and, and yes, there should be this conviction bringing us back to Jesus, but we, know, we serve a God who says, I know what you're made of. I know you're just dust. I formed you out of dust. The Bible says from dust to dust. God knows that. That is encouraging to me that he says, I know this. I know your frame. I know you're weak. Again, Jesus said over, I, I know your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. I'm thankful God knows our heart in that way. Their spirit so often is willing, but our flesh is weak. This is not a get-off-the-hook message, by the way. This is not like, okay, now you're free from it, whatever, you can just send it up. But this is one of those words, like, we need, our heart needs to be comforted by this. I know my son is human. He's made in my image. He's going to sin and make a lot of mistakes, right? That is the idea. And, like, I have, I have grace with him and patience with him because I, I know him. I love him. What else does God know? And I love this verse. It's 2 Timothy 2.19. It says this, simply this phrase, the Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Just hear that phrase. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows if you're his or not. He knows. It's weird, but if you are his, that brings you comfort. <laughs> the Lord knows those who are his. He, he knows if you're a son or not. He knows that. He knows who are his. And the other part of this phrase is, this was a saying the early church would have. This was a saying of the early church. It's not just a verse. This is something they'd go around saying. They would say, the Lord knows those who are his, and all those who uh, names the name of the Lord, let them depart from sin. Like, there's, there's this two-side. God knows, and let's just depart from sin because of that. And again, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? That is the idea. And this is so freeing. God knows who are his. Uh, it's funny. I, I was this week reading up about penguins, because I'm just a weird guy like that. But uh, I was reading up about penguins, and it's interesting. I, I think it was... Um, the empire penguins, or maybe I'm blowing that first word, I don't know, some certain type of penguin, the father, as you guys probably have known, history, I don't know, science lesson, they would actually sit on the egg while the mom goes out to the ocean, and she goes basically for three months, for two to four months, she'll be in the ocean just feeding herself. So for three months, the dad sits on the egg while the mom just kind of, you know, pigs out, right? It's kind of fun. I feel like mom's like, yeah, that should be every, you know, how we have kids today. Um, but the, the dad would sit on the egg, and actually, the dad can lose up to 45% of his weight during that three months, just sitting on the egg while the mom goes out. And they would show these, I watched a couple of videos, they'd show the moms kind of coming back, and they're like full, and the dad's like, you know, not as full. Uh, and they're coming back, and everyone looks the same, right? Like, every penguin's wearing the same outfit. Like, no one can be like, oh, that one's, yep, there, I can see this freckle. Like, it's hard to tell. They, so they actually do this, like, little call on this certain vibrations and sound and tone, but they can actually, by the call, they can say, that's my husband, that's my wife. Even, even if the, the, the chick is born by then, they can pick up on the chick's voice, even though they've never heard it before. And this idea that the mom innately knows which one's hers. The dad would also leave, go back out, go swimming, get some food, and come back, and then he'd have to do the same thing and find out, where's my family again? And he'd have to find out, and they could, fi they could find them, their family, out of thousands and thousands, like a sea of penguins, they can find their, their spouse and their child. Why? Because they know who's theirs. I love this about our God. Our God knows who, who are his. He just knows. He knows who are his. It's, I love this idea that, too, if I, my son, he can have a really terrible week. If he has a bad week and he has temper tantrums and I'm embarrassed in public and he's freaking out, can I tell you, if something bad would happen or something happens, it's not like that week. When, if my son comes to me and he says, Dad, I'm scared. He's been saying I'm scared recently. I'm like, why are you scared? But if he comes to me, there's not going to be the sense of me turning him away and saying, no, you know what? You've been bad this week. You've had a lot of temper tantrums. I'm not going to hold you protect you. Like, that'd be awful. Like, what a terrible parent. Like, no, you've had too many tantrums. You need to figure this out yourself. Like, no. It doesn't matter if he was good or bad that week. If he comes to me, it's like, you're mine. You're mine. Nothing's going to change that. And there's this idea that, again, God knows our heart. He knows we are his. We'll give you some more verses because I just think it's good. You guys know Psalm 139. David writes, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. 
Obviously, the, the point is God knows us better than we know ourselves. Be, be comforted by the fact that God knows your thought life and my thought life and still loves us. God knows what's going on in my mind and my heart, and he still loves me. He knows my sitting down, my lying up, if I go into heaven, or if I go to hell. God's, he knows he's there, he's with me, he knows me, he loves me. Again, John says God knows all things. If your heart condemns you, God knows this. He's greater than this. He's greater than your heart. And I want to use a verse that some Christians get annoyed by, but I'll explain why it's, you shouldn't be. Jeremiah 29, 11. Here we go. It says, for I know, what does God know? I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts in peace and not of evil to give you future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. Let me just say this. It's funny. Sometimes you'll get into talks with Christians. They're like, I hate when Christians use this verse because this is Old Testament. This is for Old Testament Christians and New Testament Christians shouldn't claim this. Let me just say this. They say, if you know the context, the context is for Israel, not for the church. But here's what I'll say to that. If God can say this to a group of people that were taking their babies and offering them up on idols and burning their babies to death to pagan gods, and God can say to that group of people, I know the thoughts I have towards you and thoughts of good. If God can say that to them then, how much more could he say this to us as the bride of Christ? If God can say this to the nation of Israel that was so rebellious and so against him, how much more does this apply that God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you? I honestly think that some of us tonight do need to hear these promises. Some of us tonight need to hear this. That when your heart condemns you, God is greater than that. He created that. You know, something I think that probably, I don't know if you ever think about this, but when a Christian says, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, do you know what you're saying? Do you know what you're claiming? I know God has all the power in the world to forgive me, but I just don't forgive me. So are you, you're kind of, in a sense, putting your, your idea of forgiveness maybe above God's. You're kind of saying you have power to forgive and God doesn't. Like, I want you to think about this. When you say, I know God forgives me, I just can't forgive myself. If God's forgiven you, you're forgiven. doesn't matter if you want to or can't forgive yourself or you can't move on. If God's forgiven you, he's the only one who can forgive. He's the only one who has the right to forgive. He's the person we've wronged. So if he says we're forgiven, we're forgiven. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. If you say, well, I can't forgive myself, it's like almost like I'm, I love you, but it doesn't matter. If God forgives you, you're forgiven. If God says you're free, you're free. The idea is this. Obviously, when we say that too, you're almost in some ways kind of putting something above the Lord in some ways. So I can't forgive myself. God can forgive me. You're basically saying, I can't believe I did this. I thought I was a more morally pure person. I thought I was morally a better person. And maybe there's a sense of superiority and pride in that. I can't believe I'm one of them now that needs grace just like everyone else. But guess what you are? And I am. It's almost like, there's almost like when a, when a good person sins, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm one of them. It's like, yes, finally, you are. You're one of us. You are a sinner too. It's good you see that. Like, you need to remind them of that. There is this truth that it's like, we, we are all in that same playing field. Well, again, whether how good you've lived your life or how bad you've lived your life, if you are forgiven in Christ and you have Christ's righteousness, no one can exceed Christ's righteousness. If you have Christ's righteousness in you, you cannot get better than that. No one can be like, well, I did some other good things on top of that, like A++. Like, no, like, if you have Christ's righteousness, you have his right. It doesn't get better than that. Again, this idea, though, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. If your heart condemns you and says, if Satan condemns and I love, we talked about this. Revelation 12, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. It says day and night, he does not rest out accusing the brethren. So when Satan is throwing those thoughts in your mind, I can't believe you did this. You're a Christian. You've been walking with God for so long. I can't believe you. How dare you? People are going to think less of you. And those things are going through your mind, and, and you feel that accusation. We're told also in 1 John 2 that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That we have, say, we have someone in heaven saying, yeah, but you know what? My blood covers that. Oh, did you know my blood covers that? Also, my blood covers that thing way down the road. Like, we have someone in heaven saying that's covered as well. And I think when my heart condemns me, I need to be reminded of the cross. I know there's, there's all those stupid sayings. I don't know why this came to my mind, those stupid Christian sayings sometimes. But like when the, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. But it's kind of true. I like that one. When it's like, hey, when the devil reminds you of your past, you're like, hey, remember your future? Remember that part in Revelation 20? You're thrown into like a fire forever. Uh, it's kind of fun thought, right? The idea that we are, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Let me just say this. God gives us a confidence that changes our peace. There should and needs to be peace. I know that we can walk around with a guilty conscience. I know that we will probably sin right away after church is over. I know you're, you could be sitting right now thinking about something. I don't know. It's just so possible. Our heart is just so prone to wickedness. And God knows our frame. God knows we're dust. Be encouraged of that. God said to the nation of Israel who's in just complete and utter rebellion to him, who are offering their babies on these sacrifices, bringing them to death, my thoughts of you are good and not of evil, to give you future and hope. I'm a God of redemption. I can redeem this too. <laughs> I will not stop redeeming. I make all things new. Like, hear that. I make all things new. Not some things new. I make all things new. God's going to make it new. He can make it new. 
If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. There will be this, yes. Again, we talked about the kingdom of God being like a seed. It is gradual. Seeds, if I plant a seed tomorrow, there's not this giant oak tree the next day. It is gradual. And be, be encouraged by that. If our heart condemns you, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. I want to keep going with this. Can I tell you what happens next? When you have that confidence in your heart towards God, when you have this confidence that he's describing, he's basically saying it will change how you pray. When you have confidence towards God, listen, it will change how you pray and the effectiveness of your prayers. And don't let verse 22 throw you off. We'll look at it. Look at verse 22. He says, and whatever we ask, we receive for him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. The point more is when you have this confidence, it will change how you pray. Now, don't read this verse and be like, awesome, God's is like cosmic genie. Whatever I ask for, he does, right? Like, God's some vending machine. I press these buttons, I do the right way, and I get what I ask for. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that in that way. But there's a sense where if you're walking in fellowship with him, if you have this confidence with him, if I'm walking with Christ hand in hand, the things I pray for, he does say you will receive. And you're like, how is that possible? I'll just throw some verses at you guys really quick because we know this. We know these things. It's just so true. It's Psalm 37, 4, right? A verse that also gets maybe misused. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. Think about that. As you delight in the Lord, as you enjoy the Lord, as you pray and sing and spend time with God, as you read his word, as you're like, God, I just enjoy you. Like God's like now a friend. He's not someone like I had to do devotions to once in a while to like appease him. But he's actually like my friend. I walk with him. As you delight in the Lord, watch your desires become his desires. See, people kind of go, but he'll give you the desires of your heart, so I'll just, I want to marry this person. Will I get to marry? It's like, no, because your desires will become his desires. As you delight in him, you'll, see, you'll start to pray for his will, not your will. As you delight in him, the pray, your prayers and desires will change. You'll no longer say, my kingdom come, but thy kingdom come. See, that's what happens when you start to enjoy the Lord. You get confidence in your prayer. You know, it's funny because a year ago when we started praying for this, it was something where I, f- I felt weird. It felt weird praying for this. We were praying that we would, we were praying that God would take away the desire to church plant. We're like, God, I don't want to think about it. I love my job. I love what I do. I like the grill. Like, I don't want to like leave that. And I feel like the Lord honestly was just like not letting us not pray about it. It's almost like the more I pray to take it away, the stronger it got. And then our prayers start just being for something different, and God just work. And it's funny how God, God has been so faithful to go so much more far above and beyond than what we could ask. And even initially, we're praying for a truck going, we won't get a truck. And God's like, here's a truck. You're like, no. But like, it's just funny how we, and it's not like, again, we, we pray for it, we get it. But as we walk in line with his, his will, if God goes, you know what, I want to reach people, and I'm going to do that by planning churches. And you know what, if, if I've given you the call, I'll also supply your needs. And you kind of see how God just seems to do that. He seems to build the house so we don't labor in vain. It goes hand in hand. It's another verse, John 15, 7. This is kind of what he's saying. Jesus said it this way, John 15, 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. People only read the last part, and that's where they get hung up. And it shall be done for you. But they don't realize it comes from abiding. They don't realize it comes from walking hand in hand. And again, your desires start to become his desires. Your will starts being more, God, I want your will, not my will. Your will starts turning into his will. And you see those things start to begin to change in you and through you. And really quick, I just want to give you guys this because I think it's so necessary because I don't know if Christians even talk about this because this affects our prayer life. There are certain prerequisites for prayer. Whether or not we like these or hear these, there are prerequisites to prayer. Can you just remember these or write the reference down and re- disagree with me? That's fine. Like, read these verses later. Pray with these things later. Psalm 66, 18, it says this. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now, let me say this. If, no, if someone is not a believer, and they're going to Jesus to confess sin and repent and believe in Jesus. Of course he hears. That is the prayer he's waiting for. But as believers, as we just continue, if we were to walk in sin and walk in sin and not repent and not confess and, and hide it in darkness and not let other people be aware or help us along this journey, and then we're praying and talking to God, and you feel like, why are my prayers going nowhere? Why do my prayers seem to be hitting the ceiling and that's it? It's because, again, Psalm 66, if you regard iniquity in your heart, the Lord will not hear. This idea in 1 John 3, 22, it says, again, whatever we ask, we receive because we keep his commandments and do those things that please him. That's how he hears. There are certain, again, it's walking hand in hand. So, for example, in case some of you are like hung up on this theologically, if I'm in a fight with my wife and then I go to her, and I've probably done this before, I'm sorry. If I go to her and be like, hey, so what's for dinner? It's like, what did you just ask me? Like, if I ima- imagine we're in a fight and we don't reconcile and I immediately go to the next thing, it's like, we're not going to, we're not going to talk about the next thing until that one thing's reconciled, right? It's almost like, nope, you're talking about Z, I'm still on A. 
there's almost this idea that with God, like, so, like, if there's sin that's unconfessed and you go to God with something and God's like, no, you still haven't dealt with this. You still haven't brought this to the de- our, t- our relationship yet. We haven't discussed this yet. We haven't gone through this yet. There's a breach in the relationship. Are you not husband and wife anymore? That's not the issue. There's a breach in the relationship. That's the issue. That's what's happening there. Another verse for husbands, and this probably applies to me today. First uh, Peter 3, 7. This is another good verse, a prerequisite for prayer. Husbands, I don't know if you've ever read this verse. Husbands, husbands, likewise, dwell with them or dwell with your wives with understandings why, that your prayers may not be hindered. Why do the husbands get this? I'm like, why? I know, like, come on. But why do the husbands get this verse? Husbands, dwell with your wives with understandings so that your prayers may not be hindered. My prayers can be hindered when I, when, I don't, when I lack grace with my wife, when I lack patience with my wife. It's interesting how there are prerequisites for prayer. Some people get hung up like, well, I prayed for this. Doesn't God, like, God doesn't owe us anything. <laughs> God is a debtor to no man. I, I'm, I'm the one who's in debt. And I want you to hear for us, again, there are certain things we go, why isn't this happening? Why isn't this changing? I've been praying for this. I'd say, is there sin in your life? How are you and your wife? First John 3, 22, are you obeying his commandments? Are you doing things that are pleasing him? Stop listening to the promise without listening to the prerequisite of that promise. I think some of us get so quick to the promise, but we're not doing the first and last verse. And just to throw another one on top of you, because I like to do that. Um, we ask wrongly. James 4.3, you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask amiss. They may spend it on your pleasures. God's like, you're, not even, you're asking selfishly. You're not praying for lost people. You're not praying for the broken. You're not praying for the needy. You're not praying for those that my heart breaks for. You're praying for you. It's selfish prayers. And so it's funny. Anyways, people who kind of claim the promise, but they don't understand the full context of prayer, it's like you're missing the greater point. I think we would start to see more things done as we pray for his will. We would start to see more things happening as we just pray and walk hand in hand with him and his will. Let me just say this. If you have condemnation or guilt in your heart, first of all, God is greater than your heart. And that will give you that peace. And that will change how you approach him. That will change how you pray. That will change what you ask for. That will change how you just talk to God and have a relationship with God. And then let me just end with this verse. And it will change your person. It will change everything about you. Because verse 23, and this is so profound. Listen to verse 23. It's like the exclamation point. And this is his commandment. That we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. I love how it's like singular, but two, but it's singular. Uh, He's like, this is the commandment, but it's two, but it's one. Believe on Jesus and love one another. And is that not the Bible summed up? Is 1 John 3, 23 not the Bible in in a sentence? Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Believe on Jesus and love one another. And what does that mean, believe on Jesus? What does that look like? How do we, again, this is not, this is written to Christians. It's not necessarily so much so even a salvation prayer. This is just like, do we believe on Jesus? Do we believe in Do we trust Jesus daily, moment by moment? Even, even yes, for non-believers, do you believe in Jesus? Like, do you know Jesus? Christians, if I were to ask you, why do you believe in Jesus? How would you answer that? If I said, why do you personally believe in Jesus? What is your answer? Like, I really think that we need to have a good, clear response. If someone says, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you think Jesus is the only? Why, why are you so sure that everyone else is wrong and you're the only one that has truth? We really should have a clear answer, right? You know, my go-to, and I've shared this with my small group, and I like it. For me, it's like, I sold it from Keller because I love it. He's like, here's why I'm a Christian in a sense. And people are like, I want more. But he goes, the gospel's existentially satisfying and intellectually sufficient. That's why I'm a Christian. Like, what? Like, I love his sentence. So he goes, I'm a Christian because the gospel is existentially satisfying. The, th- the needs that we just have as a human being, like, the- we all have needs. We all have desires as a human. The gospel satisfies those needs. And people go, how? And then you get to explain. And he goes, and it's intellectually sufficient. The questions I have about life and death and morality and pain and evil and, and all of that in the world, it satisfies those questions for me as well. It's, intele- it's intellectually sufficient. It's existentially satisfying. And people kind of go, what does that mean? I love that. Ravi Zacharias says it this way. He goes, what I believe in my heart must make sense in my mind. I love that. And someone's like, well, I just believe it in my heart. It's like, well, it must make sense in my mind, right? It's like, oh, I just have this burning in the bosom. You're like, no, no, no. Like, that's not good enough. We also, whatever you believe in your heart must make sense in your mind. So how do we answer? How do we respond to that? And there's going to be some objective things we should share with people that anyone can look on and talk about the resurrection and talk about the eyewitness. Like, there should be some objective things. Then there should be some personal things. That is not wrong either. There sh- should be some personal reasons why you believe. It's this both. It's objective or anyone can observe and it's subjective. It's very personal to you as well. That is okay. So my question sometimes is, if not Jesus, then what? If not Jesus, then who? Then what, then what is the answer for pain and suffering and evil? So what, what is the, what, do we even have purpose? We came from nothing, we go to nothing, but for some reason we have all this drive to do. Like, well, how, does it, how do you answer questions about purpose and value and intrinsic value? How do you answer these questions? Like, if not Jesus, then what?
If we're not made in the image of God, but yet are broken because of sin, then I don't know how to, I don't know how to even approach life. I don't even know how to think about death or the future in that way. I don't even know why we do anything then. Like, the whole idea of meaning and value is completely lost for me. For me, and I would share this probably for most people, if you, if you don't explore the person of God in the, in the form of Jesus Christ. Explore him. Talk about him. Let's, let's look to him. Let's talk about the resurrection. You know, I love, I love Peter's definition, or Peter's answer to this. And, and if you guys remember, it's in John 6. I've referenced it earlier, but Jesus just fed thousands of people. And Jesus did probably the worst thing you could do in ministry, which is, like, really, like, offend everyone. And he, again, it's funny because I think Jesus is like PR person. Be like, yo, Jesus, stop. Like, knock it off. But Jesus in front of thousands of people goes, you want to be my disciple? Eat my body and drink my blood. And this is every, it says in John 6, 6, 6, John 6, 66, and many people left in that day. Jesus goes, okay, you want to be with me? And they didn't understand. They thought, awesome, now we're following a cannibal. <laughs> this is great. We're following someone that, this makes no sense to me. Christians are weird. And a lot of people left that day. And Jesus looked at the disciples and says, hey, guys, do you also want to leave? And you guys remember Peter's response, right? In John 6, verse 69, I believe, we'll have it up here for you, or John 6, 69, Peter says, Jesus, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Can I just point this out really quick? Notice that order. Please notice that order. We have come to believe and know. I understand, even myself, I want to know something before I believe it. It just makes sense that way. You want to know, I, I'm the most annoying human. If you're trying to teach me something new, I will ask you a million questions because I need to know it, like fully know it before I can like, okay, now I can give myself to it. Like, I need to know it. But Christianity is opposite. It's like, hey, once you believe, you know. And I know that's frustrating, but this is such a true order in Christian faith. He says, I, I, we know that you are the Christ. We've come to believe and know. And it is interesting. Once you believe that, you just the, the, the veil is lifted off and you go, oh my gosh, everything else makes sense into the person and work of Jesus Christ. The whole idea of sacrifices in the Old Testament and the atonement and the priesthood and the prophets, these things that made no sense to me all make sense in the person of Jesus now. It's almost like once you believe, you go, ah, there's no other option. Like there's no other option to approach the whole testament, the whole prophecy. There's no other option other than Jesus. We've come to believe and now we know. It's almost like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, the Jews do not believe because there's this veil over their eyes. Once they believe, the veil will be removed. People want the veil removed, they don't believe. But it's like, no, you've got to believe and the veil is removed. It's just, it's just how it works. It's what, it's what C.S. Lewis said, and I butcher this quote because I never memorized it correctly, because uh, I, don't believe in, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not because I see the sun, but because by it I see everything else. I don't believe in the sun because I look at the sun. <laughs> if I look at the sun, I don't see anything else. He goes, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun because by it, I see everything else. Everything else just seems to make sense that way. This is the commandment, that you believe on the name of Jesus Christ and you love one another. Believe on the name. Believe on the name. Jesus' name means God is salvation. It's believing on that name, that God is salvation. I'm believing, I'm trusting on that name, that God is salvation. He is the Savior. He's what we need. He's what our hearts created for and designed for. He says, if you believe and love. And I love this because we in the church can be guilty of having really good theology and really bad love or really good love and really bad theology. And I love that he's like, believe and love. It needs to be both. One of my favorite quotes on this, please, I would actually write this one down. Uh, it's, it's been said, knowledge without love is dead orthodoxy. And love without knowledge is idolatry. Listen to that again. Knowledge, you have knowledge of something, without love is dead orthodoxy. Just empty religion. It's dead religion. Great, you know a lot, you memorize a lot, you have great systematic theology, but you don't love, it's just dead. It's dead orthodoxy. And love, I love everyone, but without backed up with good knowledge is idolatry. You just love, you loving for the sake of shallowness. You don't know why, you just love. There's this idea of both. For Christians, it's both. I better have good, th I better know what I believe. I better know who I believe. And I better love. And I can't have one without the other, essentially. And he goes, this is Christianity. This is the commandment. This is, this is how you define it. It will change your entire person. This confidence for a heart is set free. It will give you peace. It changes your prayer and it changes your whole person. It changes your whole life. I'll say this, guys, again, church, and please, like, for all of us need to hear this in some way. Your heart might be condemning you. God is greater than your heart. God created your heart. He knows our heart has been infiltrated with sin. He knows that our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Praise God for that. Praise God that he knows I'm just dust. I'm thankful my God knows that. I'm thankful my God, who what he started in me, will also be faithful to complete it in me also until the day of Jesus Christ. He started something and it will be finished. When we see him, we will be like him. Amen? 
church, there's freedom in this tonight. Like, I feel like John needed to take this breath of fresh air and be like, hey, by the way, if you're condemned right now, let me just clarify, God is greater than that. Like, I feel like John's, like, like laying on us, and we're like, <laughs> like, we've kind of been beat up, and John's like, let me just stop. Don't worry, next week he'll beat up on us again more. But I love this little breath. I love this idea of, like, let me just reveal to you who are not Christians, let me affirm those who really are. Both need to happen. And I don't know what that looks like for you. I'm asking that the Holy Spirit applies that in your life, that he would search you and know you. Have you just been around spiritual things, or are you truly bored again? Do you just like Jesus things and Jesus terminology, or do you really walk with Jesus and know Jesus? And if you didn't walk with Jesus and know Jesus, and you just have a tender conscience, and everything seems to condemn you, God is greater than your heart. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You are a new creation. All things have passed. All things have been made new. Walk in that. We don't have to be slaves to sin anymore because now we are slaves to Christ. I once presented my body to slave to sin, now I'm presenting my body as a slave to Jesus. That's Romans 6. That's what we talked about last week. Guys, let's keep pressing in. Let's keep moving forward. My hope is, guys, as we are, you know, kind of coming close to the end of 2017, as for us as a little community coming close to a church plant, is that we would have a group of believers that are dedicated to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to each other. That we really wouldn't just do this once in a while. That we could actually be in community. It could be about Jesus. We can serve Jesus, love Jesus. And again, we're not. We're gonna be far from perfect. And anything good takes time. Anything good takes a lot of work and energy. It does not happen overnight, but it will be worth it if you're consistent. If we're faithful. I'm telling you, there will be, God will be faithful to show up. He'll be faithful to do things that I and you can never dream of. But let's be that community that loves well and believes well. Amen? Let me pray for you guys. Listen, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, but we're going to worship one song. And if you would like to pray, I want to make myself available. I'll be up here. We have leaders around with badges. You can see that. We just want to pray with you guys. If you just want to worship, worship. If you need prayer, let's pray. And we'll close with a, a couple of thoughts or announcements. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you again. We just ask that you would just speak to our hearts as we sing. God, that the word that was spoken tonight would not be taken out. That, Lord, that the seed that was sown would just produce much fruit. That the birds of the air would not take it away. That, God, that God, the cares of this world would not choke it out. That it would not fall on just stony ground. But, God, let this seed take deep root in the soil of our hearts. Let it produce much fruit for your name, Jesus. God, for everyone in this room, let them walk with you as John walked with you. God, let your spirit abide in them, the person of your spirit, that he is here and he's with us and he's in us. So God, as we sing to you, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you, Jesus. There is no one like you. So we just sing to you now in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.